Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Our passage tonight is found in Revelation chapter 3, verses... 14 through 22. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. This particular passage is the last of Christ's letters to the seven churches. Now, the thing we must always remember when reading these letters is that these seven churches are symbolic. They're real historical churches, but they're symbolic. And when I say they are symbolic, I mean that together these seven churches represent Christ's entire completed visible church throughout the ages. That means that the promises and warnings that we read about in these letters are not just meant for the seven specific churches that the Apostle John was writing to at the time. On the contrary, the fact that these seven churches are symbolic of Christ's completed, visible church means that the promises and warnings contained in these letters are meant for every church and every individual believer that has ever lived or who, will, or, who, or who will ever live throughout the course of human history. Therefore, this letter from Jesus to the church in Laodicea, which we're about to read, really is intended for you and for me. And we really need to hear it as Christ speaking directly to each one of us. So then, let's hear what he has to say from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Hear now the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, 
I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing upon his word tonight. Dear Lord, I pray that you would speak to everyone here tonight. Lord, you and you alone have the words of eternal life. There is nowhere else to go. And so we become before you and ask to speak to us. Lord, convict us of our sin that we may know ourselves accurately, that we may better know you and something of your perfect righteousness that we may turn to you and love you and appreciate you more in light of our own sinfulness. And may you cause us to come to you and repent, Lord, for the sin that still needs to be mortified. And would you do the work of the mortifying, the mortifying work in our flesh? Would you continue to put the sin that remains to death and make us more and more alive unto Christ. We ask this in your name. Amen. How well do you receive criticism or rebukes? I once had a mentor give me some really helpful advice about how to process criticism. He told me the first thing I need to ask myself when receiving criticism is, is this someone that I trust? And do I believe this person really has my best interests at heart? Now, if the answer to these two questions is a no, that still doesn't necessarily mean that I should immediately disregard disregard what they've said. But it does tell me to be very cautious and careful in how much value I assign to their criticism or rebuke. On the other hand, if the answer to these two questions is a yes, then their rebuke or criticism of me should definitely be taken with the utmost seriousness and given further consideration. And in our passage tonight, Jesus himself, in a letter, rebukes the Laodicean church. And interestingly enough, in This is the only letter written to the seven churches in which there is nothing said about a faithful remnant to be found. In all the previous letters, Christ has mentioned something of the faithful remaining, but not so in this letter. And so the situation in the Laodicean church is quite dire. Now, if we're going to seriously consider Christ's rebuke of the church, we should first ask ourselves, is Jesus someone I can trust? And do I believe he has my best interests at heart? How you and I answer those two questions will determine how we hear or process this rebuke. Thankfully, Jesus begins this letter by revealing something of his person and his character to us. 
For example, in verse 14, Jesus opens by revealing himself as the Amen. Now, that may sound like a strange title to us because Amen uh, is usually something we say at the end of our prayers. But in Hebrew, the word Amen actually means truth. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, for example, where Yahweh actually calls himself the God of Amen. That is, the God of truth. And so we must understand that when Jesus refers to himself as the Amen, he is identifying himself with Yahweh, the God of truth which means that Christ is the source and the sum of all truth. And as the God of truth, he alone gets to define what's right and what's wrong. Not the Laodiceans, and certainly not you or me. Jesus then goes on to elaborate what he means by declaring himself to be the faithful and true witness. This means that Jesus is not only the God of truth, but he is always faithful to reveal and represent the truth. In other words, in Christ, there is no falsehood to be found. Jesus is not susceptible to misleading information or alternative facts or fake news. Because he is always faithful to accurately represent himself and to reveal the state of things as they really are. So when Jesus tells us something, whether it's about ourselves or the world that we live in, we can rest assured that what we're hearing is nothing but the truth. That means that in our relationship with Christ, we never have to worry about being deceived. And that's a wonderful thing. Although, as the Laodiceans are about to find out, the truth is not always easy to hear. Third, Christ calls himself the beginning of God's creation. Now, that should sound like a a strange title to us, because the Nicene Creed states that Jesus is very God of very God, begotten, not made being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. So what exactly does Jesus mean here when he calls himself the beginning of God's creation? Is it possible that the Nicene Creed got it wrong? Was Arianism correct after all? Are the Jehovah Witnesses correct in teaching that Jesus is actually the first created being? Well, not so fast. It's important that we don't allow ourselves to jump to false conclusions based on poor translations. We must understand that the word beginning is translated from the Greek word arche, which in this context actually means first cause. Jesus is the first cause. As a result, I prefer the Net Bible's translation of this verse, which reads that Christ is the originator of God's creation. 
And when Christ calls himself the originator of creation, we must understand that he's telling us that it was he who created the world and everything in it. But more than that, Christ is also the originator of God's new creation. He is, as the Apostle Paul describes in his letter to the Colossians, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, who has reconciled sinners to God in order to present us as holy and blameless and above reproach to himself. And so as Jesus introduces himself in this letter to the Laodicean church, we learn three very important things about him. One, we learn that he is the God of truth. Two, we learn that he is the faithful and true witness. Three, we learn that he is the first cause or the originator of both creation and redemption. Now, those first two titles tell us that Jesus is beyond a shadow of a doubt worthy of our trust because he is always faithful to the truth. Or better yet, he is always faithful to himself. And the third title tells us that he most assuredly has our best interests at heart because not only did he make us and form us while we were in our mother's womb, But it is he who, while we were still sinners, bled and died for us, that we might be redeemed and have new life. Therefore, not only should we listen to what Christ has to say in the rest of this letter, but it is absolutely vital for the welfare of our souls that we take it to heart. All right. Now that we know something about the character of Jesus, the one who's writing this letter. Let's now turn our attention to verses 15 to 17 to see how Christ describes this church in Laodicea. In verse 15, Jesus, the amen, the faithful and true witness, declares that he knows the works of the Laodicean church. He doesn't just know about them, he knows them. He knows them through and through. He knows them better than they know themselves. And he says to them, You are neither cold nor hot. I would prefer if you were either cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now when Jesus calls the Laodicean church lukewarm, Some commentators and preachers think that he means to say that the Laodiceans are mediocre Christians. These are people who are not spiritually dead or unbelieving, but they are not on fire for Jesus either. They are not passionate about their faith in Christ. They're just stuck in the middle. Average believers. You know, lukewarm. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not calling the Laodicean church mediocre Christians. We need to understand that Christ's comments here are tailor-made to the situation in Laodicea at the time. He is talking, uh, he's talking to them in a way that they will most assuredly understand. 
You see, Laodicea had two neighbors, Hierapolis and Colossae. The city of Hierapolis had hot water springs, which were believed to possess medicinal effects. The city of Hierapolis had uh, these hot water springs, and the other neighbor of Laodicea, Colossae, had cold water, which was also thought to be good for you. Laodicea, on the other hand, had no good water source of their own. As a result, they had to pipe it in from their neighbors. And when the water finally reached them, it was lukewarm and filthy. It was the kind of water, if you were unfortunate enough to taste it, that you would immediately spit out of your mouth. In other words, their water supply was useless. It wasn't good for anything. And so by comparing the Laodicean church to their lukewarm water, Jesus is telling the Laodiceans that they are in fact useless. The Laodicean Christians are spiritually dead. And the worst part about the Laodiceans is that they're not even aware of how bad off they really are. If the first step to solving any problem is recognizing that there is one, then I'm afraid that they had taken a sum total of zero steps. They were still sitting back, relaxing in their lazy boy recliner. Their material wealth, comfortable lifestyle, and success in a pagan culture misled them to believe that they were self-sufficient, independent, and in need of nothing. When in reality, according to Christ, they were in fact wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This means that there was actually nothing lovely or admirable about the Laodiceans, and that they were helpless and in danger of being extinct in both body and soul. And the reason for all this is simple. They had become so acclimated to the culture that they no longer sensed their need for Christ or longed for his return. Now, before we allow ourselves to judge the Laodiceans too harshly, we must pause here and take a closer look at ourselves. I, for one, cannot read this passage without being confronted by my own sin, my own fallen tendencies. I must confess that in the course of my everyday life, it's all too easy for me to lose sight of Christ and to forget about my great need for him. I may not be a wealthy man, but by God's grace, I have been blessed with a lot, a beautiful family, a nice house, good cars, faithful friends, and a ministry that I enjoy and I find a lot of satisfaction in doing. But as I go through the motions of each day, I can begin to see things that I have, not as God's gracious provision, but as stuff, stuff that I've earned, and stuff that I need to keep on earning in order to maintain the level of comfort that I've grown accustomed to. 
As a result, I begin to prize, I find myself beginning to prize the material things of this world, even above and beyond my Lord and Savior. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks us, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But in the world of Matt Collins, my chief end is to glorify me and to be comfortable forever. And I'm afraid that sometimes that this is why I pursue the things that I do. I try to be a good husband and father, not in obedience to Christ, but because it makes my life easier and it makes me feel good about being me. I try to befriend the students of this church and teach them God's word, not to be obedient to Christ and to glorify him, but because I want to be successful, I want to look good amongst my peers, and I want to avoid looking like a failure so that I can feel good about being me. As a result, I actually mislead myself into believing that I have what it takes to do these things on my own without the help of Christ. And so I judge myself constantly based on my own merit, which only leads me to be more dissatisfied with myself and therefore inwardly more miserable, although outwardly I might put on a good face. And because I judge myself based on my own merit, I should not be surprised when I open up God's word to this passage here tonight to find Christ also judging me based on my own merit. There's only one problem. I have no merit of my own to speak of because I am the wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, naked sinner described here in verse 17. And if I continue to make this life all about me and continue to insist on judging myself based on my own performance, then I am doomed. I'm a lukewarm Christian. Christ will most assuredly spit me out of his mouth on that final day. So then what's the solution? What hope is there for me and for others like me? Friends, brothers, and sisters, there is only one solution for our problem. And we have only one hope, and that is Christ. Christ is our only hope. Which is why Christ's counsel to the church in Laodicea is not buck up, do better, love me more, cherish me more, give away your money. No. Instead, in verse 18, Jesus counsels us to come to him to come to him and buy gold refined by fire, white garments to cover up the shame of our nakedness and eye solve that we may see. Now you might be asking yourself, what 
do these three random things have to do with Christ? And why do I need them? Well, let's take a closer look at each one and find out. According to one commentator, the gold refined by fire that Jesus refers to here is none else but faith. Faith. Which, it's, which itself is a gift that can only come from God. And faith is only refined by fire when it is forced to endure hardships and trials. We see this idea expressed in 1 Peter 1.7, which says, You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, in light of this First Peter passage, Jesus is counseling us here in Revelation chapter 3 to purchase from him faith, which can withstand the fiery trials that come from living in a sin-fallen world, but that will result in our praise, glory, and honor together with Christ when he returns. Next, Jesus tells us to buy white garments from him, to clothe ourselves so that the shame of our nakedness may not be revealed. These white garments are symbolic for the righteousness that we receive from Christ. So Jesus is telling us to clothe ourselves in his righteousness. And that is exactly what we see happening in Revelation chapter 19, verse 8, where we see the saints depict uh, the saints of the Lord clothed in white linen, which is symbolic of their righteousness that comes from being united to Christ by faith. Lastly, the eye solve is symbolic for being anointed with the Holy Spirit, who enlightens the eyes of our hearts thereby giving us the spiritual discernment we need in order to mortify remaining sin and to do the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The eye solve is what we need in order to see by faith. But why does Christ counsel us to buy these things from him? And how exactly do we do that? Well, we find the answer to both of these questions, I believe, in verse 19, where Jesus tells us that he reproves and disciplines those whom he loves. That's why Christ rebukes us, shows us the true condition of our souls, and counsels us to buy from him because he loves us. But how exactly do we do these good how but how exactly do we buy these good things from him? The answer is through repentance. Hence Jesus tells us to be zealous and repent. 
The only way to receive faith refined as gold, the white garments of Christ's righteousness and the anointing of the Holy Spirit is by coming to Jesus and repenting of our sin, which means forsaking the pride of life and the fleeting pleasures and comforts of this world and putting all our trust and hope in Christ, all of it, in Christ as the only source of our life, righteousness, wisdom, and joy. And if we do that, if we repent, we can rest assured that Christ will not spit us out of his mouth on that final day. And though we may still struggle against the remaining effects of sin, though we may still struggle with things like pride and vanity and self-centeredness, We can rest assured that our salvation does not rest on our own efforts to mortify sin, nor on our own efforts to grow in holiness. But our salvation rests on the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness in order that he may be found to be preeminent in your life and in mine. That's why we need to go to him and buy from him these things. Behold, Christ is standing at the door and knocking. Do you hear him? If so, don't hesitate to open that door. Notice what he says in verse 20. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Did you hear that? Jesus said he will have communion with anyone. Anyone. It doesn't matter what kind of person you are. It doesn't matter the kinds of things that you've done in the past. It doesn't matter how bad you think your sins might be. If you would but open that door, Jesus stands ready to forgive you and to receive you into his kingdom. And not only will he receive you into his kingdom, oh, he'll do so much more. In verse 21, he actually leaves us with the promise that he will sit you down on his very throne and allow you to participate in ruling his kingdom alongside him for all eternity. Not only do you get to enter into Christ's kingdom and you get to have your sins forgiven and you get to have eternal life, you get to sit with Christ on his throne. You get to rule alongside him. You get to be the child of God with him. What amazing grace. What amazing grace and what an amazing Savior. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word tonight. I thank you for how it's convicted me, Lord, of my own sin. 
But more than that, I'm thankful for the righteousness of Christ. And I'm thankful that it doesn't depend on me, but it depends all on the victory that he's already won. And so, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen my faith and the faith of everyone here tonight. I pray that you would help us to endure the hardships, the trials, the disappointments, the, the grief that this world puts us through, that our ta- faith may be found refined in the fire. And I pray, Lord, that you would clothe, clothe us and wrap us in your righteousness. And I pray that you would give us the eyes to see by faith. Anoint us with your Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life with you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.